Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. This podcast contains bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky, all presented in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. At the conclusion of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Ernesto Che Guevara. Now let's get started. Ernesto Guevara de la Serna was born in Rosario, Argentina on May 14, 1928. His upper-class parents forged his birth certificate to read June 14 to conceal the fact that Ernesto was conceived out of wedlock. Ernesto Guevara Lynch and Celia de la Serna Iosa both came from socially well-connected families. Despite Ernesto Sr.'s attempts at several money-making ventures, the family lived on Celia's inheritance. The most impactful occurrence of Ernesto Jr.'s early youth was his affliction with asthma, which caused the family to relocate to the small Argentinian town of Alta Gracia, considered a suitably drier and healthier climate. Eventually, the Guevaras would relocate to the town of Córdoba, hoping to improve the educational opportunities for the adolescent Ernesto and his four siblings. Guevara was not an exemplary student, but his classmates knew him to be both adventurous and occasionally defiant. However, he was not politically active, even in his teenage years. Twenty years later, he would state, I had no social preoccupation in my adolescence and no participation in the political or student struggles in Argentina. Ernesto's household was not a particularly tranquil place. His father, a constant philanderer, and the family's economic sustainability typically relying on Ernesto's mother's ever-diminishing assets. But it was very unusual for the time period, his mother presiding over a veritable salon of artists and intellectuals of all sorts of social backgrounds who must have made an impression on the Guevara children. Visitors came and went in an atmosphere of informality that greatly amused Ernesto's classmates. In March of 1947, Celia and Ernesto Sr. decided to end their marriage. With all of their assets sold or spent, the family would have to relocate to the Buenos Aires apartment of Ernesto Sr.'s elderly mother, who died shortly thereafter. Ernesto Jr. soon announced that he would enter the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Buenos Aires. Whether it was his personal curiosity about his own asthmatic condition or the experience of watching his grandmother slowly die, he never really explained the sudden career choice. University life transformed Guevara into more of an intellectual, who on his own time studied philosophy, literature, and developed a great interest in chess. Like many Argentinians, he also harbored a deep hostility towards the United States, considering them overbearing colonialists, determined to exploit all of Central and South America for their own economic interests. Prompted by his close friend, Alberto Granado, Guevara would interrupt his medical studies in 1952 by taking a year off and traveling by motorcycle throughout South America. Actually, the motorcycle would give out in Chile but the trip would continue by ship and hitchhiking through Peru, Colombia, Venezuela, and even by airplane to Miami Beach, where Granado's relative's cargo plane repairs turned a layover into several weeks' stay. This trip, which was conducted with virtually no money and relying on handouts and the generosity of friends and relatives, was recorded by Ernesto in an account that eventually would be published as The Motorcycle Diaries. By 1953, Ernesto Guevara had returned to Argentina, passed the requisite exams, and was now Dr. Guevara. Upon receiving his medical degree, Ernesto immediately set out on another lengthy South American journey with a friend, Calica Ferrer. Initially, this trip also was a happy-go-lucky adventure, but in Guayaquil, Ecuador, Guevara met up with some fellow Argentinians who invited him to go with them to Guatemala. They were law students intent on witnessing firsthand the current leftist Guatemalan government that had taken control in typically dictator-dominated Central America. Surprisingly, Ernesto Guevara, intrigued, agreed the type of impulsive maneuver that typified his outlook. 
He would make his way by small boat to Panama and hustle through Costa Rica, Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Honduras. In December of 1953, he arrived in Guatemala City, typically destitute. Guatemala in 1953 was a focal point of regional Latin American politics. The president of Guatemala, Jacobo Arbenz, was part of a leftist coalition of students, labor, and the military who had overthrown the repressive American-backed regime of Jorge Ubico in 1944. Subsequently, Arbenz was democratically elected president in 1950, and he began to impose agrarian reform intent on nationalizing the massive agricultural holdings of the United Fruit Company. United Fruit had a stranglehold on the banana trade and other industries in Central America and in the region was practically considered an unofficial agency of the U.S. government. Both Secretary of State John Foster Dulles and CIA Director Alan Dulles had strong connections to the firm and had been involved in business transactions involving the purchase of Guatemalan industrial assets. Arbenz had drawn the attention of not only the U.S. government, but of dictators like Anastasio Somoza, who was concerned that this kind of populist attitude might infect countries like Nicaragua. Immediately upon arriving in Guatemala City, Guevara attempted to gain employment through the country's Ministry of Public Health. Although he would meet many people, including an exiled Peruvian female by the name of Hilda Gadea, Ernesto would not be successful in his search for consistent employment. He did immerse himself in what he felt was an important political movement. His travels across South America and his awareness of the extreme poverty of the region radicalizing him into a Marxist and a strident opponent of capitalism, especially the type of capitalism evinced by the likes of United Fruit. It was in Guatemala that Guevara met and fell in with a group of Cuban exiles who had been forced to flee Cuba after a disastrous attack on the Moncada army barracks orchestrated by their leader, Fidel Castro. This attempt to storm the second largest military garrison in the country, located in Santiago de Cuba, resulted in the deaths or executions of most of the 160 rebels who took part. Placed on trial separately by the repressive Fulgencio Batista regime, Castro was given a 15-year jail sentence, and the Cuban exiles in Guatemala, led by Antonio Nico Lopez, had only escaped by fleeing to the Guatemalan embassy in Havana. There, the Arbenz regime bestowed political asylum, and the rebels were now celebrities in Guatemalan political circles. It was Nico Lopez who gave Ernesto Guevara his famous nickname. What initially started as El Che Argentino was eventually shortened to Che, which is an Argentinian idiom for, hey you. Even before Che Guevara's arrival in Guatemala, the American government had decided that the Arbenz regime would have to go. In January of 1954, Guatemala made public correspondence between Carlos Castillo Armas, a former colonel in the Guatemalan military, and the dictators of Nicaragua and the Dominican Republic, which made it clear that Castillo Armas was involved in training a CIA-sponsored paramilitary force in Nicaragua in preparation for a coup. The Eisenhower government denied any plot existed, but throughout the beginning of 1954, an American diplomatic drumbeat continued to assert that the Arbenz regime was infiltrated with communists. In the explosive atmosphere of McCarthyism, even the hint of communist sympathy in any Latin American country would be cause for U.S. concern and intervention. Behind closed doors at the U.N., the U.S. further isolated Guatemala by manipulating allies France and the United Kingdom, who would need American support with their own colonial problems in Indochina and the Suez. Most of Guevara's expatriate leftist friends saw the handwriting on the wall and left Guatemala. But Che was actually interested in getting involved in opposing any invasion personally. Forced to leave Guatemala in May to renew his visa, he did so in El Salvador and returned to Guatemala City. By now, another international incident had greatly exacerbated American hostility towards Guatemala. The U.S. government announced that a Swedish freighter, having sailed from a Polish port and filled with tons of Czechoslovakian weapons and armaments, had landed in the Guatemalan port of Puerto Barrios. Most likely, the Guatemalan government was attempting to prepare for an imminent invasion, but the U.S. charged that this shipment from Soviet bloc countries indicated that the Arbenz regime was intent on invading its neighbors. On June 18, 1954, in conjunction with CIA-organized bombing raids, Carlos Castillo Armas and his army of liberators crossed the Honduran-Guatemalan border, and the invasion was on. Initially, this group of 400 soldiers did not have much success. 
but a disorganized and indecisive national defense, continued American-sponsored bombing and logistical support, and a steady rebel advance on the capital eventually intimidated Arbenz into resigning on June 27th. By the first week of July, Castillo Armas would be installed as head of the military junta that would subsequently rule Guatemala. Arbenz sought asylum in the Mexican embassy and subsequently fled to Mexico. Within three years, Castillo Armas was assassinated under mysterious circumstances that have never been fully explained. The nationalization of agricultural land owned by United Fruit was immediately reversed. By mid-July, police had arrested Che's girlfriend, Hilda, and also asked about his whereabouts. Even for the youthfully reckless Che, this was a dangerous development. He sought and received asylum within the Argentinian embassy. Despite American demands that all of the 700 political refugees residing in foreign embassies be rounded up and detained, the Guatemalan government began to allow individuals like Che Guevara to leave the country. By September of 1954, he was in Mexico City. Hildegadea was also eventually expelled from Guatemala and successfully entered Mexico. While the couple had occasionally talked of marriage, Che seemed ambivalent and mostly relied on Hilda as a source of money and casual sex. Guevara also reunited with his Cuban associates from Guatemala, who indicated that it would only be a matter of time before Fidel Castro would emerge from jail. Throughout much of 1955, Che Guevara survived on a tiny salary from a medical internship and eventually moved into the apartment of Hilda Gadea, his life dull but stable. On the island of Cuba, dictator Fulgencio Batista, as a gesture of goodwill, decided to release 20 of the rebels who had carried out the Moncada attacks. The prisoners, released on May 15, 1955, included Fidel Castro and his brother Raul. This decision would have fateful consequences for Cuba, the United States, and especially Ernesto Che Guevara. Although the Batista regime considered Castro and his July 26 movement a hapless group of disorganized insects, political violence in Havana immediately escalated upon Fidel Castro's release. When the government cracked down on Castro's radio and press access, it was clear that remaining in Cuba would be unwise. Within weeks, both Castro brothers, first Raul and then Fidel, fled to Mexico City. Through his friend Nico Lopez, Che Guevara would be among the first of the political exiles to meet both men. As a doctor, Guevara enjoyed an unusual status that most of his contemporaries did not share. Both Raul and Fidel Castro took an immediate liking towards Che Guevara, and the ambitious Fidel invited Che to join his revolution, the meaningful movement the rootless searcher had perpetually sought. He immediately agreed. Che's revolutionary ambitions were interrupted by the interference of a most bourgeois situation. Castro had made it clear that he intended to return to Cuba at the head of an armed invasion, and when Che told Hilda he would join the rebels, she informed him that she was pregnant. On August 18th, Che did the right thing and married his longtime companion. He barely notified his parents, ending a long letter filled with a discussion of Argentinian politics with the simple, I don't know if you've received the formal news of my marriage and the coming of the heir. If not, I communicate the news officially so that you share it out among the people. I married Hilda Gadea, and we shall have a child. Ernesto and Hilda's first child, Hilda Beatrice, was born on February 15, 1956. 1956 would also prove to be an important year for the Cuban revolutionary government, as Castro had promised an invasion by year's end. His small group of followers in Mexico actually began military training in anticipation, and as a result of these exercises, Che Guevara distinguished himself through both political zeal and physical dedication. When the movement acquired a large ranch in a rural area outside of Mexico City and began additional surreptitious exercises, Che was one of the two men to lead the group. Fidel Castro remained in Mexico City or traveled to the United States to raise money for the cause of liberation. This clandestine operation came to a screeching halt when Fidel Castro on June 20th was arrested in the Mexican capital. Virtually all of the Cuban exile group, including Che Guevara, was detained. The Batista government had demanded that Mexico do something about this dangerous threat, and the Mexican government had obliged, even arresting Guevara's wife. Ultimately, the Castro cadre would be released from jail on the condition that they quickly leave Mexico. Because of Che's Argentinian immigration status, it took longer to secure his release. Immediately, he and his comrades went underground, awaiting direction from Castro as to how they should proceed. Guevara left his wife in Mexico City with his daughter, and for five months, he lived elsewhere, 
under an assumed name, avoiding detection. Finally, Fidel Castro raised enough money to buy and refurbish a 38-foot cabin cruiser from an American expatriate. On November 25th, 82 men, armed and ready to invade Cuba, boarded the boat known as the Grandma. The boat intended to land in the remote and mountainous Sierra Maestra region in what was then the Oriente province of eastern Cuba. After seven days, despite overloading and the awareness of the Batista government that this operation was imminent, the boat reached its approximate destination. Intending to coordinate with a land-based group of rebels and trucks, the Grandma foundered on a sandbar, the welcoming party disappeared, and the invaders had to wade ashore. They headed into the Sierra Maestra, but within days were attacked by the Cuban army. Of the original 82 men, only 17 would survive this firefight and flee further into the mountains. Che Guevara, although superficially wounded, was one of the survivors. Guevara's friend, Nico Lopez, was killed. The Batista government publicly proclaimed that they had annihilated the invaders and killed all of its leaders, including the Castro brothers and Ernesto Guevara. Che's wife and even family in Argentina heard the news, and they would quickly hear rumors to the contrary, but the status of the revolution was very much in doubt. Although the exact number is still debated, the Castro contingent would attempt to avoid capture and topple an authoritarian Cuban government. Early in this process, a New York Times reporter was able to meet Castro in his mountainous stronghold and obtain an influential interview that portrayed an idealistic rebel intent on establishing a democratic government the reporter naively minimizing any possibility that Castro had communist leanings. Photographs of Castro deeply embarrassed the Batista regime, which had insisted internationally that Castro and his followers were dead. For two years, Castro's rebel force slowly grew to about 300 men and frequently carried out armed assaults on various remote army garrisons throughout the Sierra Maestra. Frustrated by its inability to eliminate such a tiny opposition group, and concerned by continued political arrest occurring across Cuba, the Batista government became determined to act. In the summer of 1958, it deployed 10,000 soldiers to Oriente province in a coordinated effort to destroy or capture Castro and his entire command. Many of these soldiers were uninspired, inexperienced conscripts who lacked the enthusiasm and will of Castro's battle-tested guerrillas. The offensive was an utter failure, and by August of 1958, Castro made the decision to emerge from the hills and begin an offensive intent on central and western Cuba. During this process, Che Guevara became the first member of Castro's rebel force, other than Castro to be named a comandante, his rank signified by a single gold star he wore on the peak of his hat. Unlike Castro, he was an unabashed Marxist who meted out summary justice on a frequent basis to traitors, deserters, and informers, occasionally even executing the condemned with his own hands. His journals from the time period would discuss little other than the rebellion and virtually nothing about his wife, daughter, or extended family. When his wife offered to join him, he rebuffed her, saying that the situation was too dangerous. His parents learned of his exploits from journalists or clippings sent to them by friends from around the world that featured Che prominently as the Argentinian rebel, second in command to Fidel Castro. Guevara's medical background, enthusiasm bordering on fanaticism, and personal commitment in spite of serious asthma and two combat wounds made him an essential part of the Cuban Revolution from its earliest moments. Castro's offensive called for Guevara to lead his column through the central Escambre region of Cuba and hopefully to capture the strategic city of Santa Clara. He would coordinate with the column led by another rebel commandante, Camilo Cienfuegos, who would lead a separate effort through the northern sector of central Cuba. Raul Castro would lead a column that would focus on the eastern part of the country, hoping to tie down government troops defending the strategic cities of the Sierra Maestra and Sierra Cristal regions. Mathematically, the rebels were overmatched by much larger numbers of troops from the Cuban army, illegally using weapons provided by the U.S. for regional defense and not for internal suppression. But after years of violent repression, corruption, and American corporate exploitation, the Batista regime had lost support of most of Cuban society, both rich and poor. As the guerrillas proceeded out of the mountains, they began to receive support from the civilian population. Additionally, other factions intent on overthrowing the government continued strikes, demonstrations, and bombings throughout the country. Wisely, Castro refused any official alliances with other Cuban revolutionary groups, including the Cuban Communist Party. He foresaw a successful outcome and did not want his role in the revolution to be diminished and his ambitions co-opted. 
Both Che Guevara and Sinfuegos made steady progress across the Cuban countryside. By mid-December, Che's forces were poised to attack Santa Clara, the last major military objective blocking the path to Havana. The U.S. government was fully aware of the vulnerability of the Batista regime. The American ambassador had already told the Cuban dictator that he would have to resign and acquiesce to a military junta that met with American approval. Technically, Batista would be replaced in February 1959 by the winner of a recent national election, but this election had been boycotted and was considered a sham. Batista refused but understood that the defense of Santa Clara was essential to his government's survival, and he sent a 22-car armored train, packed with army reinforcements and sophisticated weaponry, to ensure a positive outcome. In the east, Cuban towns were surrendering to Raul Castro on practically a daily basis. Despite additional rebels who had joined his column along the route to Santa Clara, Che Guevara's convoy numbered no more than 450 fighters. Santa Clara would be defended by 3,500 government troops already installed in key defensive positions around the city. On December 29th, the final battle began with coordinated attacks throughout Santa Clara. The guerrillas bulldozed the railroad line, focusing their attention on the armored train that was a vital part of the city's defense. Attempting to move in response to the rebel attacks, the train's locomotive ran off the tracks and derailed in a chaotic pile of wreckage and confusion. Attacked with Molotov cocktails, the train's occupants surrendered, the entire contents of anti-aircraft batteries, machine guns, self-propelled artillery, and ammunition falling into the hands of the guerrillas. Although pockets of resistance would continue to hold out in Santa Clara, with the capture of the armored train and the simultaneous surrender of government forces in Santiago de Cuba, Fulgencio Batista decided to flee to Santo Domingo, carrying hundreds of millions of dollars, valuables of every description, and a small circle of cronies the dictator left in the early morning hours of New Year's Day, 1959. His family had already been sent out of the country several days earlier. When news of Batista's flight hit Santa Clara, the remainder of the resistance collapsed. The head of the Cuban army in Santa Clara, Colonel Joaquin Casillas, attempted to save himself by assuming a civilian disguise and fleeing with a few fellow officers towards Havana. He was quickly captured, dragged before Che Guevara, and having been associated with several notorious executions during the Batista regime, was officially shot while trying to escape. Numerous other police and army officials would be subject to similar retribution when the garrison of Santa Clara officially surrendered at midday on January 1st. The road to Havana was now wide open. Castro ordered Camilo Sinfuegos to seize Camp Colombia, the former military headquarters of the Batista government, while Che headed for La Cabana, the massive Spanish-era fortress that towered over Havana Harbor. All resistance to the rebels had ceased with the flight of Batista and the soldiers at La Cabana meekly turned over the fortress to Che Guevara. Che's column was also accompanied by Che's current romantic interest, Alita March, a woman he had taken up with in late November. A courier between Castro's force in the mountains and the underground sympathetic to Castro in Santa Clara, Alita was allowed to remain with the rebels when police discovered her revolutionary identity and raided her house in Santa Clara. That made her return to Santa Clara impossible, and despite being a female, she was allowed to remain in the Sierra Maestra. Within weeks, she would accompany Che's entourage, a fixture beside him in his jeep. Fidel Castro was intent on concealing even a hint of communist leanings and cagily kept both Che Guevara and Raul Castro out of any high-profile positions within the newly formed Cuban government. Raul Castro would remain in eastern Cuba as the military governor of the eastern provinces. Che would be named commander of La Cabana Prison. Both men were known to be political radicals, especially by the U.S. government. Castro even went as far as supporting Manuel Urrutia, a liberal moderate and opponent of Batista as the first president of the revolutionary government. Other centrist Cubans were named to various cabinet positions, understanding that his revolution was in a tenuous position both within Cuba and externally for many hostile governments, any one of which might have quickly attempted a U.S.-backed counter-revolution. Castro wished to appear as reasonable and democratic as possible. However, one of the reasons that Che Guevara was appointed to his La Cabana position was to supervise the execution of various political and military officials from the Batista regime. For the first six months of 1959, Che Guevara served as head of the military tribunal that routinely executed Cuban political prisoners by firing squad, with Che personally approving any death sentences. 
the number of individuals executed during this time period is a matter of historical dispute, usually depending on the political perspective of the historian. The official number of executions stands at 550 people. Several anti-Castro critics place the number well into the thousands, some dispatched personally by Che Guevara with a pistol shot to the back of the head. For Che Guevara personally, the grim reality of his marriage also reared its head early in the first days of the Cuban revolutionary government. His wife Hilda and daughter arrived from Peru, but Che Guevara immediately told her of the other woman and asked for a divorce. Hilda later wrote an unverifiably sentimental account of their discussion, but the divorce was granted and Che Guevara quickly married Alida March. During this time period, in early 1959, Fidel Castro went on a lengthy public relations tour of the United States, again attempting to assure the diplomatic community that he was not a communist intent on regional revolution. He addressed the Washington, D.C. National Press Club, met with Vice President Richard Nixon, and generated a great deal of attention from American media. However, much of the coverage dwelled on the very public and ugly ongoing political show trials that had occurred in Havana's sports stadium, with crowds screaming for and receiving vengeance. A frustrated Castro sent word through Raul Castro that all such executions should cease. Castro's trip did little to assuage American concern over the new regime. Richard Nixon emerged from his meeting and privately expressed his opinion that Castro was either a communist dupe or a communist himself. As early as January 1959, the CIA was reporting to Washington that Che Guevara was attempting to influence Fidel Castro to export armed revolution to several other countries, including Haiti, Guatemala, Venezuela, the Dominican Republic, and Nicaragua. Throughout 1959, Castro gradually consolidated his hold over political power. As a ruse, he resigned as prime minister and orchestrated the resignation of Manuel Urrutia, ultimately renaming himself as prime minister. He also assigned Che Guevara to an ambitious new position, the head of the industrialization department that would attempt to revitalize the country. Real power within the Cuban government was wielded by a small group of Castro's rebel hierarchy, secretly presided over by Castro himself. In addition to Che's military responsibilities and industrial management post, Castro also appointed the avowed Marxist as the head of Cuba's National Bank, a position for which Che was completely unqualified. On March 4, 1960, Che Guevara was meeting with industrial management associates in downtown Havana when a massive explosion ripped through the wharf area of the city. A French freighter, La Coubre, had been unloading armaments directly onto the dock when a momentous explosion occurred. Thirty minutes later, with a massive emergency aid effort underway, another explosion went off, killing even more people. Approximately 75 people died and 200 more were injured in an incident that Castro immediately charged was planned and carried out by the CIA. He ordered a state funeral with a procession through Havana to a speaker's platform set up in front of the city's prominent Cologne Cemetery. Castro used the occasion for a typically lengthy and aggressive speech. Alberto Corda, a former fashion photographer who had joined Castro's entourage and recorded such events, began to photograph various government officials standing in Castro's vicinity. He suddenly noticed Che Guevara standing off to the side, gazing introspectively into the crowd. Corda had only a few seconds to take two photographs before Che Guevara sat down behind Castro. Although Corda immediately knew he had taken two excellent photos, neither would be published in any newspaper accounts of the memorial. He cropped the palm tree and profile of another individual out of the picture, tilted Che's head slightly, and tacked the photo to the wall of his studio. The explosion of La Coubre was the first in a series of events that would dramatically intensify Cuban-American relations. In May of 1960, Cuba would formally reestablish diplomatic ties with the Soviet Union. The Soviet embassy had been shut down by the Batista regime. A steady stream of middle and upper class Cubans began an exodus to the United States as the status of Cuba as an American vacation colony began to disappear. With the USSR as a newfound trading partner, Castro felt emboldened enough to nationalize American oil companies in Cuba, including Texaco, Esso, and Shell. When the Eisenhower government responded by cutting the American sugar quota from 700,000 tons to zero, that is the amount of sugar that would be purchased at artificially high prices by the U.S., the USSR and Red China announced that they would pick up the slack. Nikita Khrushchev added to the tension by proclaiming that the United States was now within range of Soviet intercontinental ballistic missiles should the need arise to defend Cuba. 
Eisenhower responded that a communist government would not be allowed in the Western Hemisphere. Cuba became a central campaign issue in the U.S. presidential election of 1960. Senator John F. Kennedy criticized his opponent Richard Nixon for allowing a communist toehold in the Caribbean, and he promised action to eliminate the threat. In response, in the last days of the Eisenhower administration, an economic embargo was placed on Cuba, and any country providing assistance would lose American aid. Castro chose this time to proceed to New York and give the United Nations a typically bombastic four-hour speech. When he returned home, he nationalized any remaining business interest in the country and began forming a national militia and nationwide neighborhood committees to cooperate with the increasing Cuban internal security presence. Castro's belief that the United States would eventually intervene with military force against Cuba proved to be prescient. In January of 1961, President John F. Kennedy assumed office and inherited the Eisenhower administration's determination to overthrow Castro. The CIA already had begun training Cuban exiles for a potential invasion, and Kennedy quickly approved plans for a coordinated effort that would hopefully benefit from a mass uprising of Cuban citizens against the Castro government. On April 17, 1961, 1,300 men came ashore near Playa Larga, Cuba, which was situated on the Bahia de Cochinos, the Bay of Pigs. This remote beachfront area was surrounded by swamp and would be relatively difficult for the Cuban military to access quickly. Unfortunately for the invaders, they lost a great deal of equipment while landing, and their plan called for a resupply and air support from the American military. But bad weather and the Cuban Air Force prevented the support, and the exiles were pinned down along the beachhead. 20,000 Cuban troops responded to the threat, and instead of rebelling, the local population remained completely loyal to the Castro government. Within three days, all of the 1,300 exile invaders were killed or captured. The Bay of Pigs was one of the worst foreign policy debacles in U.S. history, embarrassing the Kennedy administration in its earliest days. One of the fundamental problems with the Bay of Pigs fiasco was that the Cuban government had previous knowledge that the invasion was imminent. Castro assumed that the invaders would focus on an area closest to the United States, and he assigned Che Guevara to command army resistance in the western Pinar del Rio region. The invasion occurred hundreds of miles away in the south-central part of the island, so Che set out most of the excitement. However, he was fully aware of the repercussions the invasion had for the Castro government and the Cuban people. Months later, at a meeting of the Organization of American States in Uruguay, he attempted to send a message to President Kennedy via attending American officials. Before the invasion, the revolution was shaky. Now it is stronger than ever. The Bay of Pigs combined with a disastrous Kennedy-Khrushchev summit meeting at Vienna to prompt the most dangerous episode of the Cold War. Thinking that his American counterpart was a weak intellectual who could be intimidated, Khrushchev began negotiations with Castro regarding the installation of nuclear missiles in Cuba. The Soviet Union had been forced to accept similar missiles in Turkey, and the Soviet leader saw an opportunity to humiliate the U.S. and also guarantee Cuba's security. Castro, with Che Guevara's enthusiastic urging, agreed in principle. As an indication of Che Guevara's importance in the Cuban government hierarchy, it was Che who was sent to the USSR in August of 1962 to finalize the deal. The Soviet premier agreed to wording that would call for a Soviet military response in the event of a U.S. attack on Cuba, but he refused to make the agreement public. The Castro government worried that the U.S. would find out about the agreement and the missiles before they arrived on the island, but Khrushchev remained firm. Unfortunately for the Cuban government, that is exactly what happened. In October, a U-2 spy plane photographed what was unmistakably nuclear missile sites being constructed in Cuba. President Kennedy ordered a naval blockade of the island, demanded that the sites be destroyed and the removal of any existing missiles. He vowed that any attempt to deliver additional missiles to Cuba would be resisted by force, and preparations were made for an invasion of Cuba. At the height of the crisis, Castro sent a direct message to Khrushchev, urging him to attack the United States with nuclear weapons if the U.S. attacked Cuba. Unbeknownst to Castro, Khrushchev had already begun negotiations to end the confrontation. The Soviet Union agreed to dismantle the Cuban sites in exchange for an American promise not to invade Cuba. Secretly, the U.S. also agreed to dismantle its own missile sites in Turkey and Italy. Both Castro and Che were stunned and outraged by Khrushchev's negotiations conducted without their input or agreement. They felt, correctly, that the Soviet government had backed away from its unconditional commitment to Cuba. For Che personally, this incident confirmed to him what he had already suspected. Cuba was merely a pawn in a much bigger Cold War competition, 
between the world's biggest superpowers. He began to focus instead on specific plans to export revolution to Central and South America. He spent much of 1963 and 1964 coordinating clandestine operations in Guatemala, Nicaragua, the Dominican Republic, and even his own Argentina. All of these efforts would fail, and despite massive amounts of Soviet economic aid, the Cuban economy began to badly deteriorate. The American embargo was definitely having an effect. Che and his wife also had four young children to contend with, although his onerous workload did not provide for much domesticity. Unlike Fidel Castro, a notorious womanizer and sybarite, Che lived a rigid Spartan existence and refused any of the privileges of rank. Many found him to be personally austere, caustic, and overly serious. Several fundamental developments shaped the next chapter of Che Guevara's life. Politically, Cuba's economic and diplomatic isolation was forcing it to rely completely on the Soviet Union. Fidel Castro understood this dependence and unequivocally aligned himself with Moscow rather than Red China. But the Soviets were skeptical of Che, who they considered to be more radical and possibly more sympathetic to Mao's form of communism. Che was also frustrated by Cuba's lack of economic progress and felt that he would be more effective by spreading Cuba's revolution internationally. When a disastrous guerrilla foray into Argentina ended with the death of Che's close associate, Jorge Massetti, and the liquidation of his entire force, Che became convinced that the only way he could achieve the type of success that had been realized during the Cuban Revolution would be to lead a revolutionary expedition himself. Massetti, coincidentally, was the man cropped out of Alberto Corda's photo. Surprisingly, the location that Che Guevara chose to attempt to impose his revolution would be on the continent of Africa. A closer analysis of this adventure would reveal some fundamental reasons for this choice. Whether Fidel Castro was secretly enthusiastic about Che leaving Cuba is a subject of ongoing debate. Che was openly critical of the Soviet government, believed that they were becoming too dominant over Cuba, and was resistant to accepting their economic approaches to industrialization. A sojourn in Africa would remove an irritant in Cuban-Soviet relations, and the Soviet government would be comfortable with revolutionary activity outside of Latin America and the absence of a potential for additional American hostility. Che personally believed that he was not merely leaving Cuba, but that he would be killed fighting on the African continent. He composed what he thought would be a final letter to Fidel Castro and his last will and testament. He was intent on joining the revolutionary forces of Laurent Kabila, who was involved in a Marxist revolution in the Republic of the Congo. Castro would eventually send approximately 100 Cubans to help Che in this effort, who expected the revolutionary struggle to last for at least five to 10 years. Instead, this effort, an ineffectual disaster, lasted only six months until a negotiated settlement called for the removal of any expatriate military participants. When his local Congolese military support disappeared, Guevara narrowly escaped capture and initially was intent on a fight to the death until eventually retreating to the Cuban embassy in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. Dissuaded by his African experience, Che Guevara decided on a more conventional objective for the next attempted expansion of revolution, Bolivia. In July of 1966, by way of Prague, Che secretly returned to Cuba. His location was a state secret as preparations were made for his entry into the small South American country. Fidel Castro and Guevara met with Mario Manje, the head of the Bolivian Communist Party in Cuba, for a training mission, and they essentially dictated that the operation would take place. Monje understood that Che's eventual objective was fomenting a revolution in nearby Argentina and felt that the situation in Bolivia would not be conducive to a successful insurgency. But he was not about to object too strongly to the two most powerful communists in the Western Hemisphere, especially while on Cuban soil. Che began preparation for this incursion in Vinales, Cuba, a remote town in the western Pinar del Rio region. In the weeks leading up to his exit from Cuba, Guevara had his wife and four children brought to his isolated compound. One of his final acts before flying out of the country was an emotional exchange with Fidel Castro. Clearly, Che sensed that he would never return alive from Bolivia. In November of 1966, Che, traveling on a fake Uruguayan passport, would arrive in La Paz, a partially shaved head and gray hair obscuring his identity. Guevara was accompanied by a small group of individuals who had served with him in the Congo. They set out for a farm in the southeast Nankawatsu River region of Bolivia and then built a base camp in a more remote area of the Bolivian jungle. Che would attempt to topple the government with a small but well-armed group of 50 Cubans and Bolivians, as well as a female, Tamara Bunk. Using the pseudonym Tanya, 
Bunk, an Argentinian of German descent, had spent the previous three years in Bolivia as an undercover agent of the Cuban government. She joined Che's expedition, which was to be the first of several prospective South American revolutions that would theoretically spread chaos all over the continent and distract the U.S. from its conflict in Vietnam. As usual, Che Guevara expected local peasants to eagerly join the rebellion once it got underway. He also expected to receive help from the Bolivian Communist Party organization. But Mario Monje waited until late December before he even journeyed to Che's hideout to insist that he, Monje, would be in charge of the rebel force. Che refused to agree, and while Monje said that he would return to La Paz to inform his associates of the impending rebellion, instead he secretly warned any of the Bolivian rebels that they would be expelled from the party if they fought with Che. He went to La Paz with no intention of ever returning and advised his fellow communists to go underground and avoid getting involved in the situation. Che responded by blithely taking many of his men from his base camp deep into the Bolivian jungle for a conditioning exercise. In his absence, some Bolivian deserters were captured by the government and related details of Cubans commanded by a man named Ramon, which was Che's code name. By the end of March, the Bolivian military would be attempting to engage with this mysterious group. The president of the country, René Barrientos, a staunch anti-communist with close ties to the U.S., declared martial law and told the nation that Cuban communist agents had invaded Bolivia. Large numbers of Bolivian soldiers were dispatched to the region. From this moment on, Che Guevara and his detachment would be on the run, attempting to avoid the Bolivian army. Much of the success of the Cuban Revolution was due to a well-organized courier underground that allowed the Cuban rebels to communicate their needs at all times. Tamara Bunk, a.k.a. Tanya, was attempting to serve this purpose and connected with Che's unit in early January. She had brought with her two agents from Cuban intelligence, Ciro Bustos and Simone de Bray. Unfortunately, a Bolivian communist informer tipped off the government as to her true identity, and she could no longer return to La Paz, where she had been able to inform Havana by coded radio messages as to the progress of and whereabouts of Che's mission. Che's two radio transmitters were not functioning, another development that precluded communication with the outside world. With many of his men sick or unenthusiastic, Che, for greater mobility, split his force into two groups. He would lead a vanguard of 20 men. The rest would be supervised by Juan Nunez, a.k.a. Joaquin. In late April, posing as journalists, Bustos and Debray, concerned by the worsening situation and intent on getting word back to Cuba, attempted to flee Guevara's group. They were immediately apprehended in the region, and under interrogation, Debray admitted that the rebels were commanded by Che Guevara. It took longer for the Bolivians to figure out who Bustos was, but when his fingerprints revealed his identity, he admitted his role and a skillful artist, he drew pictures of all of the rebels, including Che Guevara, and detailed maps of the rebel encampments. Information that Che Guevara was indeed in Bolivia was transmitted to Washington and the CIA. A contingent of Green Beret Special Forces advisors were sent to the region, as well as a Cuban-American CIA operative named Felix Rodriguez. Bolivian efforts to trap Che became intense, forcing constant movement that confused and separated the two Cuban contingents permanently. Che Guevara had no means to contact the outside world. His only intelligence gathered through local radio news reports, his days spent looking for food and medicine. His plan of escape became an attempt to hack his way through the Bolivian jungle and into the mountains of central Bolivia, this rugged area hopefully providing the cover necessary to avoid capture. It was a fantasy at best. Che did not give up on reuniting with Joaquin's group of 10 rebels. On August 31st, led by a local peasant guide who had tipped off the Bolivian army, Joaquin and his band of guerrillas waded across a river near Vado del Yeso, Bolivia. Waiting for them were 30 members of the Bolivian army who proceeded to ambush and wipe out the entire column. Tanya was among the dead. Her body fished out downstream a week later. Che got word of the disaster through local radio. He immediately attempted to access some of the remotest terrain in the area, reaching altitudes of over 6,000 feet. Run down and sick with asthma, Che spent most of his time on a mule. His tiny force was reduced to meandering through the wilderness, attempting to avoid capture. News of his whereabouts was dutifully reported by the local populace. The Bolivian army contingent, which numbered close to 2,000 troops, anticipated that Che would eventually reach an area near the tiny village of La Higuera, Bolivia. On September 26th, the army successfully ambushed and killed three members of Che's contingent and forced the rest of the rebels into a nearby canyon. 
The entire area was completely occupied by the Bolivian military, but the rebels were able to evade capture, at least for the moment. Che was down to 17 men, the same number that had survived the landing of the Grandma only 11 years earlier. On October 8th, Che Guevara was completely surrounded in a small canyon near La Higuera. The only escape would be to shoot it out with the army and hope for the best. Che Guevara split his men into three units and attacked. In the ensuing gun battle, Guevara was disarmed when a bullet shattered his rifle barrel and his pistol became useless. Unarmed, wounded through the leg, he and another guerrilla attempted to escape out of the canyon, but were both captured. Che Guevara identified himself immediately to the captain of the company. Che's hands were bound and he was marched with the other prisoner to the village of La Higuera. There, Che was separated, tied hand and foot, and locked into a primitive two-room schoolhouse, spending the night next to the bodies of two of his dead comrades. The following morning, local senior officials of the Bolivian military, as well as Felix Rodriguez, arrived in La Higuera by helicopter. Rodriguez would eventually recount his encounter with the captive Che. He looked like a beggar. He did not even have a uniform. He did not have any boots. He had some pair of leather tied down to his foot. He was very filthy, and it was a tremendous shock to see the way this man looked at this point in time. Rodriguez hoped to keep Che Guevara alive and get him out of the country to a neutral site for an intelligence gold mine, but felt any decision should be left to the Bolivian government. A simple code had been established from the military hierarchy. 500 referred to Che Guevara, 600 men execute him, 700 men keep him alive. The code numbers that were eventually relayed were 500, 600. Most likely, the Bolivian government did not want the tremendous international scrutiny of Che's lengthy imprisonment, a spectacular trial, and even a potential escape. Rodriguez brought Che out of the schoolhouse and posed for pictures with a downcast Che Guevara. Afterwards, a young woman came up to Rodriguez and asked why Che was being photographed if the radio had already said he had been killed in combat. Rodriguez knew then what the cover story of the Bolivian government would be. A sergeant was selected to handle Che's execution. Rodriguez instructed him to shoot Che below the neck to ensure that the cover story would be plausible, and then returned to Che's room and told him he had failed to save his life and that he would be executed. Che's last words to him were, tell Fidel that he will see a triumphant revolution in America, and tell my wife to remarry and try to be happy. This exchange was interrupted by the sounds of two of Che's comrades being executed nearby. Che stood at attention as Rodriguez left the room. As the sergeant entered, Che supposedly said, I know you have come to kill me. Shoot, coward. You are only going to kill a man. It was 10 after 1 p.m. on October 9, 1967. Ernesto Che Guevara was 39 years old. Che the man was dead. The Bolivian government would do everything possible to diminish his memory. After unceremoniously displaying his body to the international press in a hospital in Valle Grande, Bolivia, they cut off and preserved his hands, lest anyone claim that Che had not died, and then they buried the body in a secret location in Valle Grande. Despite these efforts, Che the myth would quickly begin to grow to staggering proportions. On October 15th, Fidel Castro addressed the nation of Cuba and confirmed the death of Che in Bolivia. On October 18th, a million Cubans packed into Havana's Plaza de la Revolución to hear Castro memorialize his fallen comrade. In the plaza, a gigantic banner of Che, fashioned after the quarter image, stood behind him. With the Vietnam War well underway and revolutionary attitudes percolating in both the U.S. and Western Europe, interest in Che was increasing internationally. A leftist Italian publisher, John Giacomo Feltrinelli, was able to secure the rights to the captured Bolivian diaries of Che Guevara, and he placed the court of photo on the cover of the diary. Posters were also created and widely disseminated to promote the book, further increasing the profile of the photo. A full-page copy of the court of photo was also used in an August 1967 article in Paris Match, one of the world's most popular publications. Perhaps the most recognized iteration of the photograph, now entitled Guerrero Heroico, the heroic gorilla was Irish artist Jim Fitzpatrick's interpretation, which featured Che's face and beret in black and white, his commandante star in yellow, and a scarlet red background. Part of the widespread use of the photo was due to Cuba's lack of recognition of international copyright laws, so Alberto Corda did not receive royalties for these or any other usage of his famous photo. Over the years, he never complained, but in 2000, when a liquor company used the image, he drew the line and sued, successfully receiving an out-of-court settlement. Corda died in 2001, but his daughter currently attempts to police inappropriate usage of the picture and acknowledgement of its copyright. 
Part of Che's mythic legacy is the fact that through Corda's photo, Che Guevara's image has been reproduced more times than any other human being. Alita March dutifully did remarry, unfortunately unhappily. She and three of her surviving children still live relatively private lives in Havana. She wrote a book about her life with Che Guevara in 2007. Hilda Gadia died in 1974. Her daughter Hildita also died in obscurity in Havana in 1995. Che's mother passed away from cancer while he was in Africa. His father and siblings were forced to flee Argentina as a result of right-wing political persecution. Ernesto Guevara Lynch remarried and wrote several books about his revolutionary son before Guevara Lynch's death in Havana in 1987. Thirty years after his liquidation, some of the Bolivian army officials involved with Che's assassination began to express feelings of guilt concerning what they had done with his body. In interviews, they began to provide clues as to where Che's grave might be. Cuban and Argentinian forensic teams spent two years searching the airstrip near Valle Grande, Bolivia, before finally unearthing Che Guevara's remains in 1997. Most of the other members of the ill-fated Bolivian expedition were also eventually uncovered. All of these individuals, including Tanya, would be entombed with Che in a magnificent mausoleum in Santa Clara, Cuba, the site of Che's greatest military victory. Like most controversial figures, Che Guevara remains an enigma. An obscure political activist before he connected with Fidel Castro, his only real success was his participation in the Cuban Revolution. His attempts at financial and government reform were completely unsuccessful. His fanatic devotion to spreading world revolution became a delusional obsession that ultimately cost him his life. One and a half million Cubans have fled Cuba's political repression and extreme poverty. Today, most inhabitants of the island will privately express fatigue from a 56-year revolution that has made day-to-day -day survival a demanding process. Still, the Castro regime has been able to cultivate the myth of a godlike martyr who dedicated his life to the Cuban people. In Cuban schools, children are asked to recite daily that they will be more like Che. Nowhere in the world is the iconic image of Che Guevara more ubiquitous than in the city of Havana and the island of Cuba. He remains a kind of patron saint to encourage the Cuban people, no matter how difficult their experience becomes. A biography of Che could conclude with one of his typically strident and dogmatic quotations, or a quote from numerous emotional letters to family and friends. Instead, the Bertolt Brecht maxim, unhappy the land that is in need of heroes, seems much more fitting. Thank you for listening to this podcast about Ernesto Che Guevara. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Che Guevara, A Revolutionary Life by John Lee Anderson, Che, The Life, Death, and Afterlife of a Revolutionary, edited by Joseph Hart, and Che's Afterlife, The Legacy of an Image. For photographs and information on how to access this material and for additional podcasts, please visit my website at someveryfamouspeople.com.